This episode is sponsored by ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP and download the ZocDoc app for free to find a top-rated doctor today. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast about to make a 6G burn, so get your anti-impact chemicals ingested lest your organs collapse. Today we're discussing The Expanse, a science fiction novel series by James S.A. Corey, real names Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, that started in 2001, and a TV series that started in 2015, both of which now wrapped up. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, only partially put back together by alien dogs. My name's Al Baker from Leeds in the UK, and I am wondering whether or not it's racist to do a belter accent joke. Hi, I'm Sabrina Weiss, educator, recovering academic, and gamer geek, wondering how I can incorporate Expanse characters into my D&D games. And our new-to-my-podcast new guest. Hi, my name's Colin Cole. I'm a voting rights professional and a one-time reality television show editor, and I'm a general all-around giant nerd. I sometimes make YouTube videos, and I play a lot of video games. Well, thanks to all of you for coming on. So you are the elite because you've all we've all read the books, right? Okay, so Al is shaking your head. Where did you how far did you get? I read the first one twice, several times apart, and never got further than that. Okay. But Colin and Sabrina, you've both soldiered through. I've read all the books, some of the novellas, but not all the novellas, and I've watched the series. And I've read everything except for the final Memories Legion coda, which I'll be getting around to any day. Is that really a coda? That happens after the last one? I guess I wasn't sure. Because I did listen through the whole short story thing, and it seems like some of them, like, it could have happened anywhere toward the end there. It's not directly connected. There's supposed to be one final one at the very end that is the opposite of the Epstein burn. Oh, okay. My history with this, so I had read the first book and enjoyed that, but not enough that I had immediately sought out the, I guess there was a series at the time. And then, you know, the TV show started, and I didn't watch that for a while because I wanted to read more books, but then I didn't get around to reading more books. So I finally just watched the whole TV show. And then thinking about doing this at Al's suggestion, I got back to the books. I've been doing audiobooks, doing them at like 1.6 speed and with increasing frequency. So I did finish not only the short story collection, but the last Leviathan Falls last night. <laughs> that oh, it's wow. been just the last two weeks. I've shoved in about five of six of the books, constantly having them on. So I think I... <laughs> You know, you don't know how much your attention wanders with those audiobooks, but it's a good presentation to have them in. I wasn't sure. It seemed a little, since the writers were so involved in the making of the show, it's a little redundant. Like after having watched season two, then I'm reading the second book. Like I kind of already know this. I don't, I, you know, it's not adding so much. What did you guys think just about sort of the adaptation aspect? Colin, start us off. I think the strongest, maybe single initial thing that they did was take elements of the second book and put it right away into the first season. I love the first book a lot, but I think it is, unlike every other part of the series, it's a little male-centric. And bringing in, depending on if you're in the audiobook land or the TV series, Avasarala or Avasarala, and uh, Bobby early on, I think, really does a lot to round out the cast. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I checked and I think Bobby doesn't show up till season two of the show too. I fixed that. But Avasarala, definitely the actor. She is amazing. She's voiced uh, characters in Mass Effect. She's a big sci-fi person. So bringing her on the show in the first season, I think was a really good move. And Colin, I agree that Leviathan Wakes, it starts out kind of a space noir sort of book. And I think each of the books kind of touches on other types of genres or other types of stories within that particular book. 
And yeah, Leviathan Wakes definitely is a little bit isolated because it's trying to introduce us to the world. It's focusing on a a smaller type of story that then ends up connecting and expanding. So I agree also that the adaptation was very good. It's very close. So it's a little bit mind bending trying to think about the two of them because they're kind of like alternate realities in a way. They made a fair number of changes in some of the characters. And I saw discussions online that some people who are hardcore book fans didn't like it. Some people found the show to work pretty well. I think kind of like with other mega series, mega productions like Game of Thrones and such, you just have such a huge cast of characters that you do need to trim them down. And I think that they did this adaptation very well, very effectively. Al, you're the one that sort of said this is important enough that we should do, even though it's maybe not the most watched series, but give us your pitch for. No, but it is certainly the best science fiction TV show for I would say at least a decade. And I think certainly the only very excellent political allegory sci-fi since, I mean, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but right, the political allegory in, in The Expanse is clearly superior, to, you know, maybe ever, maybe since H.G. Wells. Yeah, I think just clearly a phenomenal piece of entertainment, phenomenal piece of TV. And I guess like you, Mark, the reason that I never felt the need to kind of revisit the books after I started watching the show because it just felt like such a complete and serious piece of work. It was very fulfilling. And I'm sure I will go back and look at the books someday. But as a piece of art, the the Expanse TV show was just phenomenal, I think. Oh, it definitely draws a similar audience and a similar style to Battlestar Galactica from 2004. I see a lot of fans talking about seeing kind of the inheritance of that gritty sci-fi that we had in the first season of Battlestar Galactica. And then beyond that, we had Babylon 5, we had Deep Space Nine, we had a lot of those shows. And Star Trek tried to get there and they weren't quite able to get to the level that BSG and The Expanse got to because they had to do episodic TV because they had a lot of other constraints. So it was really great kind of seeing. uh, I was a big fan of Battlestar Galactica, too. So seeing kind of the torch being passed to The Expanse was just very fulfilling for me. Well, Sabrina, last time we talked, it was about Game of Thrones, that it was officially a partially examined life episode. But it was right before this podcast started. And it was sort of Hmm. that discussion with you and me and Wes was like, what made me think I should just do this as a separate thing and get people on. So that was a prototype. People have called this Game of Thrones in space. I mean, what do you guys, is that a good pitch? In all the best ways, thankfully with less sex position and with better battles. <laughs> Almost no sex position that I recall. Yeah, the first episode has some random stuff because <laughs> this was on sci-fi at first and they're trying to be edgy and show this is an adult show, but I'm glad <laughs> they just ditched that because <laughs> it, it wasn't necessary. I think that really does the expanse a disservice because what Game of Thrones did, which was innovative, was take seriously the idea of political intrigue in a fantasy world. And the expanse has that too. But the thing it does, so we're right into the world building, but the thing it does, which I think is probably the most impressive, is have such a realistic political economy driven world. So everyone does something. So in Game of Thrones, everyone does something because they want something and that's really well realized. But in the expanse, the thing that I think is unique, innovative and special about it is that everybody does something because they want things, but also because they they need to. Like The conditions of their existence are what propels their motivations as much as their desires. And that, I think, is really incredible. I would agree with that. I think the expanse world feels more realized than at least than talking TV show to TV show. Obviously, in the Game of Thrones books, the world is is really well developed and quite established. But 
this gets into a bit of the series' origins as a tabletop game, but the extent to which the world is entirely thought out and is its own character, not just a setting, but really a moving and active participant in the story, I think is is really unique in the expanse. Yeah, I think Sabrina had pitched having you on, Colin, as somebody that would have some definite thoughts about the geopolitical stuff. I mean, that Game of Thrones is a nice, like, War of the Rose, you know, different factions and who's going to get the throne and things. But the fact that these are not just fantasy, you know, these are direct, I don't know if it's a direct allegory. I was thinking Mars was the USSR, but now I hear that Mars from the authors is like the USA, that in their way of thinking it, it's like the Earth is more like England and we're the spunky colonies, but they also say, okay, well, Mars is also different than that because they have this singular dedication to terraforming Mars. Like they can't just be lazy, wall-e, dystopian, post-scarcity people like what's going on on Earth. And they think all Earthers are lazy and things. So it seemed to me that it was Mars was a little more USSR in that let's put all our stuff toward the military and maybe have a hollowed out cultural space in a way that Earth does not. But in any case, the belt is definitely the quote-unquote third world and the issues of our exploitation of workers in poor countries right now. Like it's pretty direct with the exception of, you know, that they have to worry about oxygen and things like that. Like, so there are things built into living in space that make it to heighten the differences in the global things that might just be sort of an accident of history that you have something built into the environment right there. I should say, eventually we're going to spoil some significant things, but I think we can, even for people that have no familiarity with the show, don't want anything ruined to them. Maybe you just never tuned in in the first place to this if you were in that case. But I think there's probably a lot that can be said just even about the value of these as political allegory and stuff without necessarily spoiling who dies when and et cetera. So we'll at least announce when we get in spoilery. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard about how Mars represents the United States, but I can see it because they're very specific about all the Martians have kind of a cowboy accent. And, and so there's that. That is kind of in your face. Or maybe that it's just the Mariner Valley accent. It's just part of Mars. <laughs> yeah, but it's the frontier. As far as them being militaristic, it's been interesting seeing the current conflict. We're not allowed to talk about it, the, you know, Russia invading Ukraine and talking about the relative size of militaries that by various metrics, the United States has the first, second, third, and, you know, sometimes fourth most powerful militaries. If you look at air forces, if you look at navies, if you look at ground troops, if you look at technology, weapons, whatever. So we do probably look like that to every other country on this planet, that we are overwhelmingly militaristic because we have so much in the way of the military. And, and speaking as a veteran, there's a lot more to it than just being aggressive. You know, we have force projection and all of that, but there is absolutely a strong focus on the military in the United States. So I can definitely buy that. But also the aspect of colonizing the frontier, that is very much the United States. You have the huge tracts of land that you can kind of expand to, but they do have that dream of terraforming Mars, which is what's limiting them. But that's their dream. That's what they are aiming for. And then things end up changing in the later books. It's their own manifest destiny. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and the tech difference, I think, is relevant, too. There's a line in the first book, I think, somewhere that says that like Mars was always jealous that Earth had the bigger fleet. And Earth was always jealous that Mars had the better one. Where any one MCRN Marine would be able to, in a zero or null G situation, crush a squad of Earther military one-to-one -one because the tech was so much better, which isn't too far of an allegory from the investments we've made in our military and 
you know, what happens when we send them overseas to countries with smaller and, and scrappier forces. Well, it's also a nice nod to Starship Troopers. That was one of the books that I did this year for my students. And that whole idea of the space marine that was basically coined by Robert Heinlein. It was great to get to see this in the books and also to get to see what would these suits look like and how would they actually operate in a battle on the TV show. And so that made my space marine loving heart sing too. I always picture too much Starcraft when I (laughs) jacked up and good to go. They click in (laughs) there. Go ahead. One element I think is fun to talk about with regard to the political implications is sort of how it deals with class and privilege and sort of ethnicity, but not exactly. The books set up the situation where like race doesn't really matter anymore. Like we're such a melting pot that you can look anywhere and you're constantly running into people with different skin tones and people have traditionally Asian last names, but they speak an accent from French origin and they're actually like, they look African and you live in this post-racial society, but you sort of have these different classes of people like the Belters who sort of are in many ways running through a lot of the same kinds of issues that historically marginalized communities today do in terms of disinvestment access to resources, feeling like they're not engaged by the political system. And I think that's sort of an interesting parallel slash opposite of a parallel to to talk about. Yeah, I've been thinking about the questions of representation and different flavors of it for teaching and for, you know, working with uh, young learners today. And I think that I would classify what we see in this book as a passive representation it's not a bad thing, but as opposed to active representation, the passive representation is it's described that there are people of many different skin colors and facial features, and you have different last names, you have the Belter Creole that brings from all these different languages. And so it's passively setting up the idea that yeah, non white people, non you know, white American, non European people made it into space, and they brought their culture and they're there. But it's never really remarked upon actively while the Belters challenges that they're facing with being exploited for resource production and being ignored politically. That's much more of the active political representation aspect of it. And it's not bad. I think it's a good step. And there's a lot of discussions about can a white author actually write about people of color and such. And so I think that it was a reasonable and responsible move, especially from back in 2011 when when the first book was written. So I personally appreciate it, and I would love to see more books like this in addition to other things like the Julia Universe by Alette de Baudard, which is a Vietnamese space opera, essentially, which is awesome. It's heavily inspired by Vietnamese culture, but I think that this definitely has a great place in the ecology of more diverse science fiction. I absolutely agree with everything you say, and I think another opportunity that that choice on racial representation in the books and how to highlight it an opportunity that affords them is to be really sophisticated in how they explore the intersections between economic and racial oppression in the treatment of the belters, because it's also like explicitly described that they are physiologically different. They are in a lot of ways a different race, like to the point where belters can't easily live in gravity environments, right? I think what you say is really interesting because it kind of drives home the point that the racial allegory in the expanse has as much to do with the economic dimension of systemic racism as it does to the strictly racial elements of structural racism. I've studied epigenetics and I love the fact that they show speciation in progress, that 
our bodies, the way our DNA is expressed will actually be different depending on external environmental factors. And that can actually be inherited and that can be passed on. And then you also have that cultural element. So the way that belters make the idea of the gravity well, that that is visible to them. And while for us as readers on Earth, we live in a gravity well, but we don't think about it. It's kind of that unseen, you can almost say privilege, that environment that we're in, we never really think about. It's normal. But for them, they have to make a deliberate decision and they have to take a really grueling regimen of medications and therapy and all of that to even have a chance of being able to go down to a gravity well without dying. And not all of them are able to do that. And so bringing that aspect is a really wonderful part of science fiction that we don't get to see very much. I'll say one more thing in this, on this note, which is just that even within the belt, the belt is not a monolith, that there are different cultural experiences. And sometimes this leads to some infighting and sometimes sort of a, a race to the bottom type situation. So if you if you're a belter who grew up on Palace Station, Earth will kill you. You have no chance. You grew up in such a low G environment, like you got no opportunity. But if you grew up on Ceres or Eros with proper medication, with some drills, like you could actually do that. And then you have the splits within the OPA where you have the Fred Johnson OPA and the old school OPA. And there are different philosophical and long-term goals and ways that they do their business. And I think that really gets at a similar idea. Well, just to connect the two themes so far, the political stuff and the adaptation from page to screen, I want to see what you all thought. I found it a little hard to take these later seasons of having more Belter central characters who talk in these made-up accents. Apparently, they got a linguist to help them. So on the show, on page, you can have characters that you know, are this new minority that, you know, so they don't have to claim to be representing any existing oppressed populations, but they can make up their own to use as a metaphor. And you look really physiologically different. Well, when they're casting it, they found a few people who are really tall and skinny, but even they don't have like the enormous heads that are described like, and <laughs> again, from the same interview that I just listened to a little this morning is that they thought if they actually use CGI or whatever to literally show on the screen what they've written, that the audiences would just see them as alien and that would just defeat the purpose because you're supposed to sympathize with these characters. So that was a fine. And it seems like when you get past the pilot, they don't even try anymore. And it's like casting elves for Tolkien, like get somebody who's kind of tall and skinny and everybody looks for the most part, tall and skinny and beautiful on TV anyway. <laughs> so it's just a subsection of who you'd be casting and try to give some contrast. But then the accents that they had to use I don't know, maybe had the same interference that I found it harder to connect with these characters. Like, is this person being a bad actor? I don't think they're being a bad actor, but they're talking in this made up accent that like is really hard for me to take seriously. I didn't have that problem. I thought that the accents were remarkably uncringy given the task that they'd set themselves. Although I'm happy to be corrected on this, but they came across to me as a lot less awkward than again, back to Game of Thrones, like the Dothraki, say, there wasn't any screaming racial coding which would have made it very uncomfortable. The closest that I got was a sense of kind of Afrikaans noises to me. That was the closest, like you said, Creole. So maybe that's why I found it less awkward. But yeah, didn't have that problem at all. It was really immersive for me. And also, even even the uh, audiobooks, I think, did a, did a pretty good job. The narrator, Jefferson Mays, National Treasure, did a really good job of, I think, towing that line where... The first time I was listening through, I remember thinking like, am I supposed to understand what's being said and I'm just missing it? 
Or is, is the point that this is really hard to follow and I can't convert this to English very well? And then he starts translating for Havelock. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not supposed to get it. <laughs> I think that there's always a tension, uh, especially when you're portraying something on screen or live in doing a realistic or accurate portrayal from the source material, which in a book, yeah, our imaginations can envision anything versus making something that's relatable enough to an audience on TV. And also just, you know, with realistic expectations of if you can only hire people like they did for the belter who got tortured in season one, if you can only hire people with that type of a frame, you're going to be extremely limited on actors. And I am so glad they cast the people who they did for Drummer, for Naomi, for Marcos, and even Philip. He looks like the kid of the actors who play Naomi and Marco and Naras. I was just stunned by that. But there was definitely a shift from the early season, the first season where they did get a lot of people with the much skinnier build and all that, and people using a lot more hand gestures, which was also very fascinating to me that because the belters are oftentimes in spacesuits, they have to basically communicate almost like scuba divers, which I learned as a scuba diver is that you have to use a lot of hand signals to communicate. And they kind of got away from that. And so basically, the way you identified the belters are they had kind of that Creole type accent, and they had really amazing tattoos and, you know, funny shaved hairstyles. But they used enough coding so you could tell who was a belter. And I think that they chose to err on the side of trying to make sure that these characters were relatable to the audience, which I can understand that and I can respect it. It's a testament, I think, to the quality of the world building that you really don't need those physical cues to identify who a belter is and, and who they are. You don't even need the tattoos or the or the accents. It's in what they say, what they want, and even how they carry themselves. It's so well realized. I didn't even notice that they t- tapered off using the funny actors. I just was rewatching some of season one and Thomas Jane, you're, you mentioned Sabrina, the, the funny haircuts. They give Thomas Jane this shaved on the side, but really long on the top haircut that is ideal for making it clear when he's supposed to be pushed around and disheveled. Cause it's like somebody with a toupee that's like flapping around basically <laughs> that can really make this character look down and out just by mussing up his hair. Cause he's essentially some sort of comb over that they've artificially created. I, I think everyone loves, likes Miller to an extent and he becomes kind of a comfort in the, in the later seasons when when he shows up but yeah as an actor I, I really appreciated the work he did too i mean it's always a little disconcerting you got to mix the fresh faces that you can really associate the west chatham like that is that character even though that's not how he's described he's like a much bigger beefier guy in the books but you know the fact that i didn't know him from other stuff and that's the same with all the the leads but then seeing thomas jane there who had just kind of even to the point of after doing Punisher and and self-parodying in Arrested Development, if you remember his turn in that as like the actor, you know, playing himself. As a homeless man. Yeah. So then seeing him in, in this was a, I think, distracting at first to me. And I maybe had the same thing with a few of the, but, you know, you get past it pretty fast. And having Jared Harris, who plays in the first season, the head of the underground, Anderson Dawes was a, a much more important character in the book. Maybe they just couldn't get the actor I'm seeing on IMDb that he's only in it for seven episodes. So he must not even be after the first season, but he's there pretty far into the books. But having an actor of that, I just think of him as like, oh, he's one of the good actors, you know, like a, a Shakespearean kind of actor. And he's going to do that accent and he's going to be one of the first people you see. This is setting a template or Paul Costanzo as uh, Shed Garvey, who is you might know from the film Road Trip, like as a wacky teen actor 
he was sort of the comic relief, even though it wasn't a particularly hilarious role. It's just like seeing it's like having a Saturday Night Live guy shoved in there. I don't know. Any thoughts on casting here? I think for the Game of Thrones in space allegory, it's remarkable the degree to which Holden's face, if you zoom in, has got some real Jon Snow vibes. Uh, and I have to wonder <laughs> if that was on purpose or if it was just incidental. Yeah, I literally thought that he was the guy who played Robert Stark quite a long time. I'm still, I guess, yes, it could be a British person. Is he really? A, okay, I'm looking. He's not a British person in real life. You never know what these things, all these American accent TV people like, oh, they're from New Zealand. I'm like, okay, all these people are more talented than I am that can, can sustain an accent through this many seasons. But I'm still a little divided on him because he's supposed to be, have such gravitas as a character in the show. And so it just seems a really hard part to cast. And he did fine. But he's somebody that I can't quite completely equate with the role because I'm picturing something like, who's really going to be the guy that his charisma changes the universe? Like, how do you cast someone? like? It's like when you write geniuses in a show and then somehow the writers have to also be geniuses to give them genius things to say. Like, there's a disconnect in trying to imagine superlatives and then actually fulfill that with a performance, say. He's no Cara G or uh, Frankie Adams. That is something I'd like to ask the people who've read through all the books because Holden seems in the TV version, for my money, is, is the weakest character, but it's kind of just protagonist syndrome in that you need the person who's the like supposed to be the audience's POV to have very little personality of their own so that they can inhabit whatever point they need to inhabit. But it does seem like he's a receiver of drama and plot and that as much as he's supposed to be the person who like he's making all this stuff happen. It seems like his superpower really is just being in the right place at the right time a lot of the time. Does he have a kind of stronger motivation in the books as they go through? Or is he also... Because also his narrative function is to be the guy that everyone can trust. And it's difficult to be that if you have a particularly strong character one way or the other. So does that read differently in the books? Or am I just being too harsh anyway? Yeah, I'll be curious to see how we diverge our lineup here. My sort of interpretation of him on the book side is it's less that everyone can trust him and more that everyone knows what he's going to do. That he's so predictable insofar as his guiding philosophy is if you give everyone all of the information all of the time, you can trust the collective good to make the right decision. And that that makes him both, I mean, trustworthy insofar as you know what he'll do with the information that you give him but not necessarily that you think he'll, he'll keep all of your secrets, which a lot of characters end up pretty explicitly wanting to manipulate or being worried about other people manipulating. I think he still does have a bit of that where he's, he's often not the most interesting character in the room. But I think particularly in the later books, I think he gets more interesting. And by later books, I mean the books that take place after where the show has ended, where I think he starts having to grapple more with sort of where his philosophy comes up short and some of his eternal optimism sort of starts seeming like it's maybe not a good fit for reality. And I think overall, though, I think that aspect isn't too far off. So I think we wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the great man idea and such. And and having the Holden is he starts out very much fitting that archetype, the everyman, the audience perspective. He's kind of at the center of everything. There are also some ideas about comparing these characters to a D&D party, which was not my idea, but I, um, I, I remember someone brought it up. So he would definitely fit the paladin, the, uh, the lawful stupid 
character who must do the right thing because it is the right thing to do and everyone should do this. And as, as Colin said, he's predictable. But because of that, I think the books do challenge and push back on this idea that he's driving things or that it's his, his higher morality or ethics that are doing things. But instead, we see Avasarala, for example, saying, oh, who do we send? Oh, let's send Holden. I, I know what he's going to do. He's going to blow things up and make things happen. But I'm pretty sure I know how that's going to work. It's unleash the Holden. It's, it's go send him over there. And so he ends up kind of being ping ponged around throughout the books as these different factions sent him after things because they're, they're pretty sure about they, they know what he's going to do. And that he's not going to act out of a selfish motivation to grab power. And so in that sense, he's kind of unique and special because he's the person who doesn't actually want power and influence, but he keeps getting a thrust upon him. But he's very much bouncing between all of these different factions. And a lot of them are trying to kind of use him in their own way. So I, I found it kind of amusing. And, and the characters themselves even seem to recognize and comment on this several times, too. Mm. When you have a, a long series of books like this, you have a lot of opportunity. All the characters get very well developed, of course. They could have more backstory of Holden. Like They talk about it enough at the beginning. I kind of got the impression that it was sort of like you know, in the Star Trek reboot where they have Kirk as a teen, like driving his car real fast. And he's rebel. And I thought like, okay, this is basically that character that he was raised in this rural setting and, and rebelled against that and got kicked out of the military for hitting a guy who was being, you know, who was in the wrong and uh, well, rebelled against which dad. I love that <laughs> he had, that he had a poly commune of a family. That was, that was just a, a really nice little touch there. This idea of the D and D group and them even thinking, you know, around book three or four where like, we need to add more people to the crew. So they've already introduced Bobby. Like, hopefully, oh, is she going to join the crew? Is, is Miller going to join the crew from the beginning? You know, these other characters that are floating around that you hope at least temporarily will, because there's something, and they really lean into it hard in the book that, that like, this is a family and we just love each other so much, even though we're not all romantically involved. And, you know, the relationships are all kind of strange, but, you know, there's something central about the party. But then you also want to, send them far and wide and have their little solo adventures so that they can, or I've been reading this in parallel with revisiting wheel of time, which that one was like immediately we've gotten through one book. Let's send most of the characters thither and yawn and have them all change in mostly negative, you know, as they all get disillusioned and older and have horrible things happen to them. And we get more so toward the very end of the series that it's, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, that they do put the characters through the ringer in a way that they do not when they're just all like having their little happy uh, time on the ship together. Let us stop for a little sponsor break. Finding and booking a doctor who's right for you does not need to be a terrible experience. Will they take your insurance, understand your needs, or be available when you can see them? With ZocDoc, the answer can be refreshingly a pain-free yes. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. When you feel like something should be checked out, you just go on the computer. You could use it on your phone. Search among all the types of doctors. You'll see the ones in your area. You can read up on them. You can get verified patient reviews, see what other actual humans had to say about their visit. It's only going to show you ones that take your insurance. And right in the app, you can choose a time slot, whether you want to see the doctor in person or do a video visit. And just like that, you are booked. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. I am one of them. It is my go-to whenever I need to find and book a doctor. 
in a chaotic world of healthcare. Let ZocDoc be your trusted guide to find a quality doctor in a way that's surprisingly pain-free. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash PMP. ZocDoc.com slash PMP. The books, I think, are masterfully done in terms of how they juggle the characters, making them all interesting and making them all balanced and sort of grow into themselves. On the show, we haven't really talked about this current aborted season that is supposed to be the end of the show, even though maybe it's just going to be, they'll bring it up again in five or 10 years because there's like a 30-year jump in the books at that point. But there's also anti-aging drugs and all this stuff that, and you know, people look younger in space, so they don't actually have to wait that long. They could use- 80 is the new 40. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But it seemed like this last season to me took a lot of time on character moments that I didn't care as much about. I mean, maybe that was just that the whole drummer character being a composite of things and speaking in this weird act is just never somebody I was completely sold on and making so much of the last season about what's going to happen on series station, which seemed like a kind of a minor thing in the books. I, I don't know. I was, I was kind of impatient with the whole thing because I read past that point and I was like, more interesting things are going to happen than what is, you're only giving us six episodes and this is what you're giving us. How did you feel about the treatment of this as a drama? Were you feeling on the, in this last season? Was it dramatically satisfying for you? I was feeling a fair amount. And part of it was because by the time I got to watch this final season, I had gone through most of, most of the other books. And I liked the drummer character on the show, even though she is this composite, even though they changed how she is. But I think they still gave her a strong emotional and personal arc. And one article that I found by Tor was about, I think, the second to last episode of the series. They said, what I thought about while I watched the stunner of an episode was how people always say change is hard, but that doesn't really get to the heart of it. Change is hard for a person, for an individual, yes, or at least it can be. What can be even harder is when you run up against people who don't want you or things to change or who aren't able to see how you've changed. And there are all these kind of side characters who go through change. Uh, Another character who comes to mind is uh, Clarissa Mao, who starts out trying to assassinate Holden. And she has a really big redemption type of arc. And that's something she wrestles with in the show. That's something Amos joins her on. And that's something that as readers and as viewers, we have to think about is that, you know, can this person be redeemed? Can we ever forgive this person? And that's where Holden, again, he kind of gets stuck in there as kind of the audience surrogate to wrestle with, with that sort of a question. And Drummer in the show more so has to kind of finally accept that she is somebody who needs to step up and be a leader to protect what's important to her. And at the beginning, she's kind of this badass space pirate with her awesome poly family. But she realizes that she can't stay neutral. She can't just stay out of things and just look out for herself. That in order to look out for what remains of her family, she has to step up. And then she, it's vulnerable. She has to go and trust Avasarala and she has to work with these other people who she's hated. And that's a difficult thing. And that's something where all of the big power players have had to kind of come and, and look at each other. And realize that things have changed irrevocably where they're at and that they have to change what they do as well. I have a one remark that gets into post post show spoilers. So I'm not sure if now is the time to say it or not. Or if Al wants to plug his ears. In terms of general plot arcs and 
Yeah, people can stop. Everything goes. Can turn it off if they don't if they've heard enough. So go ahead. For me, I always liked that the books sort of had this really escalating scale of conflict, and that by the end, the stuff in the background with the ring builders or the goths or gate builders, whatever you want to call them, ends up becoming more and more relevant. And throughout the series, it's sort of there in the background, and people are like, "This is weird. We'll probably have to talk about this later," but we don't really have time right now. And you only get it like in, in little drips. Like you get a bunch with the investigator and the uh, exploration of Illus or New Terra. So that's season four, right? And then season three also has a, you know, we're in the ring space and they're going to kill us if we don't behave ourselves. I wonder if the aliens are sort of like the environment. If we want to have an actual parallel that like, while we're having our squabbling and our economic, I own this so I could do whatever I want, you know, then environmental catastrophism is coming on us. And so this is at least through most of it, the alien presences and there are two of them, as we learned by season four, so that, you know, you can kind of play one against the other. But in any case, it sort of ends up being some limit, something that we have to navigate. And I always I love those little drips, you know, entering the ring station, getting those little teasers uh, was really great. And so with the show sort of ending where it did, you never really get that resolution that it's all building towards, which is why I hope they do come back in, in 10 years and finish the story. But to what Sabrina was talking about, I think one aspect that I really love in a nice bit of dramatic irony, and this is where you should plug your ears if you don't want to know what happens after book six, but you end up with this with this new status quo with the transport union and drummers in charge and like the belters are finally going to have like their place in society. And then immediately it just gets ripped away from them and they end up in a, in a far worse situation than they ever were before. And the new status quo ends up being you know, an oppressive authoritarian dictator with uh, universal power. And that, I think, was a really fun and unexpected conclusion to that. And also, I think, further drives home that theme of, like, you can't go back. And even if things were really great, it's too late now. Like, that wonderful, like, fantasy dream that we achieved for, like, three years is gone, and we have to live in this new reality and, and respond to that. And I think that was a, a really nice element of what starts happening in the seventh book. I don't know why you thought that the idea that the utopia they land on at the end of season six lasted all of about 10 minutes would be a spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) Especially because they set it up, they spend, which I hadn't read the short story Strange Dogs at the time that I started watching the show. And that takes up a significant portion of the last season, even though it doesn't pay off in any way (laughs) in, in what we saw here. Which is why they got to make a movie or something. Like, it's weird for them to have spent all that time on that if it's not going to go where it goes. I was thinking about the idea that was brought up about the aliens kind of being the environment or the backdrop for a good part of the series. And then the goths especially become the adversary. And what bits I know about psychological development is that that's something that we go through as babies. Our parents are basically environment, essentially. You know, they are nourishment, they are warmth, they are safety, whatever. And then slowly we start to develop an awareness that no, 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 this is a person. This is another being. This is not just part of the backdrop. And so we get to see this progression of they encounter the proto molecule, they get the gaze. This is all, you know, spoilers for the entire series. Then they realize that there's these other aliens that wiped out the first aliens. Then they have their own squabbles again with, you know, bombing Earth, which that was pretty big. That was as big as the season three time skip for Battlestar Galactica to me. And that took a while for me to, for me to process that, wow, you're not fixing that. <laughs> you're not fixing that at all. 
and things just keep escalating to the point where now they have to figure out what do we do with these these eldritch aliens who are so big, so far beyond us, and we have become big enough and we're able to actually irritate them enough that they're starting to take action against us. What do we do? That's that eldritch element that the universe is huge and we have our big things going on, but they are just a, a blink of an eye, essentially, to these these other beings. And that that was uh, pretty profound. Yes, I could give a, a thematic spoiler, not an actual event spoiler for what's going on at the end of the book. But the whole thing has been about can human beings get along? And so they play mm-hmm. with the idea, you know, with this Laconian Empire, right? The Martians that we see is now in the concluding parts going to try to have a galaxy-wide empire. And so it very much, oh, is this Star Wars now? What is it? What <laughs> Are we doing this? And that gets by the end when sort of the, there's more, the reason that they have this technological edge is because they picked a planet to settle on that has more of the alien technology and they're doing more research on it. And so they sort of become the avatars in a way and in, in a very literal way by the end of some of these past aliens. And so they really ask like, would we be better off if we had, we're all singing in harmony? If the things that divide us as people, if we all, if we all realized, oh, the hippies have told us, just realize that we're all one, you know, the veil of Maya that separates us, your little differences between each other are all trivial. And there, if we just realize that, then we would all live in peace. And that's why we might want to have a, a galaxy spanning civilization just to like say, look, these are just, these are the rules of civilization. Just no more war. And it's, I think this series of novelists asking the question, like in a more serious way than like Star Trek or something where Star Trek will, you know, have some uh, dystopian, the computer runs everything. And of course we don't want that. I don't know. There's some more actual playing with it and, and having somebody seriously like take the position that maybe this, all this fighting is bad, <laughs> you know, and seriously tussle with that a little, even if. You know, of course, they end up being straight ahead villains when you come down to it. Well, so there's this concept of the, the Fermi paradox, where we wonder, why don't we see the signs of alien life today in the real world? That if life is as common as we think it is, and we look at the signals we're sending out into the universe, uh, we should probably see something by now. We don't. And there's different answers to the Fermi paradox. And one is that life is just way more rare than we think it is. Or maybe we are the only ones. Or maybe, you know, there's something big and scary and extraterrestrial out there that's eating the signals that go on for before they are, are around for long enough for us to find them. One of my favorite answers to the Fermi paradox is that there's this series of great filters that prevent intelligent life from getting to the point where they can send out signals that maybe like life is actually really common, but complex life is really uncommon. And that's a great filter that a lot of life doesn't get through. And then maybe life exiting like an aquatic environment and getting onto surface land where you can use fire. Maybe that's also really, really uncommon. And so you have these series of of barriers that make it harder to get a civilization to the point where we can detect them. And if you follow this down to its conclusion, one of the other like great filters might actually be individualism and collectivism. And that, you know, living in a society where all you need is one person with sufficient resources to say, screw it, I'm going to launch a nuke or launch 10 nukes. And that that one person's choice has the technology to ruin things for everyone, that that in and of itself might be a great filter and that any sufficiently individualistic society on a long enough time scale destroys itself before it can actually achieve anything. The jackoffs ruin it for everybody. Just a few well, bad. 
I'll add to that though, Colin, that that's kind of presuming almost a linear progression that, and that someone has to get through all of those hoops and then they will be able to communicate and we'll, we'll all be able to talk with each other. But if you add in, you know, embodied communication and biosemiotics that depending on what type of a species evolves, you mentioned aquatic species. Imagine if there were sapien octopuses and how would they perceive the world? How would they communicate? And would we actually be able to understand the communications that they were sending to us? It's, it's kind of timely because I just heard that we, we sent nudes out into space that were really badly pixelated graphics. And, you know, it would be very interesting, a, a, you know, an octopus species finding these transmissions and trying to make sense of this. You know, would they actually see it as something worth spending their time and attention on or would they assume it was some weird space noise? So we, we add that layer onto it as well, which we kind of got to see with the ring aliens and with the goths that they perceive the world and they interact with the world in a completely different way. And trying to find a compatible way to communicate would also be a challenge. I mean, that's add uh, to bring us back to the the expanse. That's the first two seasons, and I guess two books as well, is literally the characters trying to figure out what the proto-molecule is, whether it's a message, whether it's a threat, whether it's a warning. And it speaks to all those all those things you just Race, we would have no idea how to even go about beginning to comprehend something which evolved in such a radically different environment and it explores that really well too. We just have to hope, I guess, if we ever meet an alien that they also understand how to manipulate uh, private detective type <laughs> characters. I wouldn't mind having a Detective Miller in my head. He was, he was cool. <laughs> also, if that's a subject that interests you, you should definitely either watch Arrival or read the short story, A Story of Your Life, which explores that concept of humanity trying to communicate with something completely alien. Something that I heard the creators say multiple times, actually in one of the notes to the short stories and then in the same interview, was that sci-fi is great in that it doesn't, according to them, have a built-in formula that a romance as you know, you sort of know they're going to get together or they're maybe they're both going to die or something, but that other genres, whereas sci-fi can be anything. So they could have their like, this is our noir one. This is our action one. This is, but I sort of don't agree because I think the sci-fi, the Ur sci-fi story is we're playing God and bad things happen and we shouldn't do that. We're, you know, <laughs> even as irritating as it is when I watch a movie, you know, that some of them, these old movies, they would literally like, I guess we shouldn't play be play God with the universe, but that kind of ends up being the story of this. Like the proto molecule from the, its first inception is like this is something way beyond our understanding, and we should not screw with it because it will kill us. So again, there's a sort of debate about that, and people saying it's inevitable. If I don't do it, somebody else will. It's just like the terrorism thing. Like if I don't break the peace, somebody else will. Game theory is something that's often brought up that, you know, if everybody behaves themselves well, then things will go. But if somebody is going to break protocol and mess with the technology or throw a nuke or something, then it's actually in more in your interest as someone who would otherwise be inclined to be good to also be bad. Like if somebody's going to be bad, everybody should be bad. And if everybody's going to be bad, you may as well sacrifice one space station that's kind of small and learn from it so you can benefit all of humanity rather than risking someone else just destroying all of us. Wait, wait, so now we have the trolley problem. <laughs> I think that story, Mark, is basically the story that is always covered in science and technology ethics, is we got too big for our britches, we can do all of these amazing things, and then someone uses it wrong, or it goes, it goes overboard, or we don't think about the unintended consequences, and then things blow up in our faces, and then we have to deal with, with the consequences of that. So 
that is kind of the story of seeking knowledge and of technology, whether it was from, you know, the first tool use or fire or the car or whatever. So that is that is a very, very core theme, I think. Getting back to something Colin picked up on a while ago, which is the theme of not being able to go back. But I think what, what we're talking about here is the way that technological advances also represent as much as political choices or political developments. Technological advances also represent the state of things changing irrevocably. You can't put the proto molecule back in the bottle, just like we can't put the internet back in a bottle. It represents a step change and there's nothing we can do about it. Right. When you have, I think in season three, when they're in the ring gates, the bad guys are the ones who are trying to do that. Like, let's just blow up the ring gates because this is something that is in the long run, even though they're sort of right, <laughs> that like mm-hmm. it, this is going to be bad. This is going to lead to so much more bad things in the future books. But at that moment, they're cast as the villains. So just the fact that some of the villains in these are just so, I don't want to say one dimensional, but just they were well crafted as people that you just love to hate, you know, that, that like, <laughs> I'm just doing my job. I'm just, I don't care that we're all going to die. I'm just going to do my job. I'd rather go out doing my job. That's the Burn Gorman character in oh. season four. Uh, <laughs> I, I did not like the character in the books, but I love Burn Gorman as an actor. So he, he made that character tolerable for me. But the bad guys wanting to blow up the ring gates, it's a, uh, he's out of line, but he's right. <laughs> I think that's one strength of the series as well is that it's it's a lot more interesting to look at like Avasarala as a opposing faction or an opposing viewpoint rather than Murtry as an actual villain villain that like a lot of the good guys, Fred Johnson, Anderson Dawes, uh, <laughs> in, in more in the books, or even Marco to an extent. I feel like a lot of the non, maybe not so much uh, Marco, but Michio Pa in the books, some of these non-villain villains are a lot more interesting than the villains because they're sympathetic and you can see that they have a point and that there's more complexness there that there's not just one character who's right it's not just that holden's the right character yeah avasarala kind of reminds me of an old school dragon in terms of like in dungeons and dragons you know dragons are very intelligent they're very powerful they're very wise and they could smush you if they wanted to, but they, they happen to have a use for you. So as long as you're polite, as long as you listen to them to a reasonable extent, they'll reward you. They'll send you off onto things. And that's kind of how I see her is she can be incredibly dangerous. She can be incredibly uh, cynical. She can use her power in, in very non-happy sorts of ways. But at the same time, we do get to see that she does care about about important things that are relatable to us. And she is in in this position where she's trying to balance a lot of different forces, as most of the big power players are. So, yeah, Colin, I agree. I, I really appreciate how textured and layered these characters are. They are all flawed. They all are doing not so great things, but they also have values that do make sense to us. I think the really ex- the real exception to that is Marco, though, and Colin. You caught yourself earlier, <laughs> like saying, "Actually, there's not really much redeeming about him by the end." And I'm interested to know whether you guys think this would be possible because I think it would have been possible to make his motivations more compelling for longer than they actually were because he's obviously grotesque by the end of it. But it would have been, I think, really interesting if they're been able to be a way to show that even though he was clearly self-interested, self-aggrandizing, like narcissistic monster, if he had also been more effective with a more kind of coherent and promising political vision for the future of the belt, rather than just being clearly wrongheaded from our kind of perspective. 
I think that would have made it more interesting. He was just very quickly, for my money, just painted as an absolute monster, which is like internally consistent in the show, at least. And I think it is the point, it is the author's point. And I will, my evidence for this is that there is a short story about Philip, which I won't say any more about that, but about what eventually happens to them, even though he doesn't show up in the books anymore, is there's a certain kind of bully that in a very Lord of the Flies sort of way, like that this is what the whole thing is about, is from talking about the Leviathan, is talking about human nature, (laughs) making it so that if we don't have some sort of structures, then life will be nasty, brutish, and short. And one of the main mechanisms of that is some brute who's charismatic and maybe is reflecting, is using some of the words that reflect real things that people have to legitimately complain about, but is just using it for his own purposes because he's a big self-aggrandizing asshole who just will do things because he can. And that is what that character is about. Don't we have quite a, f- a few of those people in charge of most of the world's wealth right now? You just, might, you just might saying. Think, you might I don't think see him as that direct. unrealistic. <laughs> Give them a space fleet and they'll probably bomb Earth too. <laughs> I don't necessarily think it's unrealistic, but I do agree it would be at least, it would be more, it would create more moral conflict in the viewer if you could be like, man, he sucks, but like also he does kind of have a point and I could see making that decision or I could see extrapolating out his choices and it could lead to a better world for the belt. But by the end, you know, it's all BS. And so that you can't even devil's advocate on his side anymore. I think they likewise in this last season put way more screen time into Philip coming to be disillusioned with his father, with that character, because in the book, it's just sort of like he remembers something that his mom said in the, you know, in the last (laughs) book when they were together. And here they have to introduce extra characters and have just all these dialogue scenes. And so it's such that the nature of that abusive relationship is such that if he really was a three-dimensional character who had a more legitimate point, there would have been no breakaway. You had to have a character that that was awful for, for this other character to have a complete reason to separate. I'm sure there's probably a, a, you know, a skillful way to slice that apple that i'm not seeing but to me it it actually worked pretty well i liked how they gave a little bit more focus on philip's emotional journey and that's something that people talk about that we should focus on the people who are oppressed the people who are being hurt and focus on their agency and their journey rather than on the oppressors or the abusers and so there was a little bit more time given to philip but i i kind of appreciated that because i think that's a story that a lot of people could benefit from seeing is breaking away from an abusive parent, breaking away from a narcissistic, controlling boss or whoever, and seeing that process modeled and seeing that it's not clean, it's not easy, and that Philip falls down many times throughout that. So I appreciated that they took some time for that. But then it's really interesting to contrast the treatment of Marco to the treatment of Avasala, who is controlling and has imperialist instincts that she never quite gets over is an oppressive political character for I think the entire definitely the entire show like her her instincts and freedom for the belt at no cost and she never really goes back on that I can't recall if she ever revealed to be appropriately contrite about her seemingly like routine torture of OPA terrorists in the first season or in the first book either but I, I think the treatment of morally complex characters is I think she does own that later and you just, by Sean Doyle, uh, Aaron Wright in the early seasons is such like another mm. one of those people that you just look at him and he's just so loathsome and you know, he's going to be a bad guy from the very first, at least I, I felt like that if you're going to have this be the person that she conquers, then you're going to be pretty sympathetic to her for the, for the duration. 
that she's sort of the mama hen to everybody else. You know, like we're going to sweep the torturing under the rug. She's <laughs> she's backing the right team for most of it. She's the yes, she's the, dragon, the expletive spewing space grandma. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, I will say, Sabrina, to what you said about this that that story sort of being important. I guess uh, that's something I hadn't really given explicit thought until you raised that. I think we do, we definitely have an overabundance of stories. I think where someone is in an abusive relationship. And you just have to love that person hard enough. And then like you can turn the redeeming qualities into something good and you can fix them. And I can see that there's value in showing that actually sometimes someone's just abusive and there is no redeeming them and you should get out. That's a a rare story in a lot of pop culture. So I I see the value there. Well, I think we should wrap this up. There's obviously way more we can talk about if, if folks can stick around for a little after talk for supporters. Listeners can go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop to hear that. But otherwise, any final words on, I assume this is a strong recommend. Can we go go around one more time, sort of speaking to the audience? I think a good question would be, how should people approach this series? Should they read the books first? Should they watch the show first? Should they should they interweave them? What, what do we think would be better there? I mean, I've been convinced that I need to read the books, if only so that I can read more of the expanded stuff. I would say pretty much always books, but again, it's sort of whichever one you go first, then the second one will seem a little pointless. So I did not enjoy the books whose seasons I had already seen on TV shows as much as once I finally got past that, then like, oh, this is actually surprising and and awesome again. So it is a lot dependent on what happens. It's a very plot driven thing, even though we've been discussing it, it's all just like, in political terms, the fact that you know the plot of Shakespeare, who cares? Like, in fact, you should know before you see it. But I don't think that's the case here. Like so many of these, they're like well-written thrillers that, you know, the reason that when I'm in the last few hours of one of the audiobooks, like, oh, I gotta, I just gotta get over the hump. I gotta get to the end because there's some big, you know, race against time thing that's happening. I'll double down on The Expanse being, if not the best sci-fi of the last 20 or 30 years, at least being the best in the last decade. So I would say whatever format gets you into it, they are all really good. The audiobooks are incredibly well narrated and they hit that really good sweet spot between the narrator doing characters, but also like using their real voice. The prose itself is beautiful. And if you like to read text on a page, it's, it's really, really nice. If you know, if you drive a lot, you don't have time to read, do the audiobooks. If you want to binge something, watch the show, like whatever gets you into it is worth it because it is that good. Yeah, I'll say that I think that it is excellent. It's just an excellent science fiction. It's an excellent story. But I would also say that it is a landmark story. So if you want to understand and get into science fiction space opera, this is a series you need to know about because it is so so big and influential. And I've been thinking about you know, introducing my book club people to the series. And I almost wish I didn't have to start with the first book because the first book is a little bit detached from the others. So one suggestion I might have is that if you start reading the first book and you just can't quite get into it because you're not into noir, because it's more of a focus on too many male characters, then set that book aside, watch the first season of the show and kind of get through that and then see if you can reapproach it or just skip the first book and then go on to the other books. What do you think about starting with a novella like Strange Dogs or something as a way to kind of do an easier entry? And do you think that any of the novellas might work? Probably not. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just trying um, to think of someone who maybe gets a little intimidated at reading the, the big first book and to get a glimpse of this world, perhaps. 
and then have that be a way to inspire them to pursue it. It's probably worth mentioning that they, which uh, something Colin gestured at earlier, that TV show definitely, and I think the books to a slightly lesser extent, doesn't take any prisoners, really. It drops you right in where the world is, and it's going to let you be confused about things mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, certainly I had to watch the first few episodes two or three times before I really knew what was going on. And I think that's that's to be expected. Yeah, it's okay to be confused and a little overwhelmed. I'll just add real quickly to Sabrina's last question that the novels are really interesting, I think, because you can read them chronologically and in between each of the books and have one experience. Or you can read all of the books and then go read the novellas and have a totally different experience. And neither one is right. It just adds context. And so you could make a case, I think, for someone reading Butcher Vanderson's Station or The Churn first. And I think that would be a really interesting first step into the series that wouldn't fully make sense until later. But that could be fascinating. Sure. Butcher of Anderson Station, I think, would be a great introduction to, which it's in the TV show in the first few episodes. That's how central they thought it was to have the backstory of this character. I like not knowing who's going to live and die in the first episodes, <laughs> such, such that if you already read The Churn, then you would know that Amos is like sticking around and is an important character. Whereas. <laughs> Mm. I, I liked the the disorientation, the Game of Thrones like disorientation, where like they could all be dead. I don't, I don't know what rules this show is playing with. So we've unfortunately ruined it for people to have that level of disorientation. Well, and then the show threw us a, another curveball because of, of casting. So continue to be interesting. <laughs> all right, bye everybody. Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks so much. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.